In this episode of The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. Michael Mithofer, the lead investigator that has successfully piloted the first ever study of MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, into the third and final stage of FDA approval for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Mithofer is featured as a lead character in the 2015 book, Acid Test, by award-winning journalist Tom Schroeder, a meticulously researched history of the controversy and unprecedented healing properties associated with psychedelics. The FDA granted Dr. Mithofer and his colleagues breakthrough status to expedite its application for approval because they're seeing such dramatic results working with veterans tormented by complex PTSD, which is notoriously difficult to treat even with the best and most expensive therapies. We've had people just, you know, who've had like uncontrollable rage just have that stop happening after one session. I talk with Michael about the safety of therapeutically supervised MDMA and how it works in the brain. MDMA is referred to as an empathogen because it activates our natural ability to be open-hearted, friendly, and collaborative, something that immediately gets switched off when the brain goes into safe mode while experiencing emotional turmoil. Even garden variety stress can do this, like a parent that yells every day or a boss that expects to get perfection but only gives criticism. But for now, Dr. Mithofer is using particularly egregious forms of trauma, combat experience, as the test use case with the FDA. And unlike many people's idea of all illegal drugs being dangerous or addictive, a full course of MDMA is given in microdoses only two to three times in about one month, accompanied by an all-day psychotherapy session each time. But the patient essentially walks away born again. They report seeing a world not just the way it was before their trauma, but with eyes that are profoundly capable of seeing gratitude, joy, and meaning in life. People think they're grateful because they're happy. Actually, they're happy because they're grateful. I don't think I'm the only one wondering, do I have to wait to get complex PTSD to sign up for this? Wider access to these life-changing treatments for less acute suffering indeed might be coming down the line. Just a week ago, the best-selling self-help guru and podcaster Tim Ferriss talked about his experience of sexual abuse in childhood for the first time publicly. And he credits Dr. Mithofer for what he described as a breakthrough treatment with MDMA, as well as Dr. Richard Schwartz in IFS therapy, someone that I interviewed in episode four of the Soul of Life podcast. And by the way, the Tim Ferriss episode that talks about MDMA and IFS is episode number 464 of his show, which I'll put a link to in the notes here at souloflifeshow.com. As a psychiatrist for many decades, Michael describes how all psychoactive medicines, medicines that act on the brain function, are merely tools to help free up the brain to do what it knows how to do, heal and function as a whole. If you get out of the way and be curious and encourage people to be open to what comes, you find the breadth and the depth and the richness and the complexity of each individual's healing process is beyond what we ever could have cooked up with our rational minds as a plan, and it's far more beautiful and far more effective. Welcome to episode six. I'm Keith Miller. This is the Soul of Life podcast. And this is MDMA Breakthrough.
I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Dr. Michael Midhofer is a psychiatrist living in Asheville, North Carolina, with a research office in Charleston, South Carolina. In 2000, he began collaborating with MAPS, that's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, on the first U.S. Phase II clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. He and his wife, Annie, have since conducted two of the six MAPS-sponsored Phase II clinical trials testing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, as well as a study providing MDMA-assisted sessions for therapists who have completed the MAPS-sponsored MDMA training therapy program. He's now the senior medical director for medical affairs, training and supervision at MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. He is a Groff certified holotropic breathwork facilitator, is trained in EMDR and internal family systems therapy, and has nearly 30 years of experience treating trauma patients. Before going into psychiatry in 1991, Michael practiced emergency medicine for 10 years. He served as medical director of the Charleston County and Georgetown County Emergency Departments and held clinical faculty positions at the Medical University of South Carolina. He's been board certified in psychiatry, emergency medicine, and internal medicine. Dr. Michael Mithofer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Keith. Really good to see you again. Good to see you again. It's been many years since we trained together down in Asheville, and I understand you're you're there right now. Uh, how's, How's life in Asheville? Life is, you know, we're very fortunate that we're, you know, it's pretty uh, not too dense population around here and we're, we're doing okay with the pandemic. We feel really fortunate that we can keep working from home right. through things like the Zoom. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're, um, we're, we're very lucky. The hardest part is not being able to hug the grandchildren. Yes, yes. Um, uh, it's so great to to see you again and, and hear what you're doing. You know, I've been following your work for many years since we first met. Maybe I think we met maybe ten or twelve years ago. Um, and and during that time, I mean, it really seems to me, Michael, that your work, uh, even at that time, was at the forefront at, as the lead investigator uh, for the uh, FDA approval of MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Um, and I've just watched that unfold in uh, chapter after chapter. And especially uh, in, in, in the book Acid Test, which we'll talk about by Tom Schroeder, literally in chapter after chapter, such a great book we'll get <laughs> to talk about today, which you're featured in, in numerous chapters there. Um, I want to start right in and, and ask you about um, public perception. So we're, we're going to talk a, a lot about your work in MDMA and what that is. Um, I want to ask you, my experience, Michael, is that public perception and it, it, the general public really doesn't understand the distinctions when we talk about psychoactive medicine. They think of uh, some, some people, generally speaking, kind of have a misunderstanding about um, what medicine is really, what drugs are, and how they are used. For example, uh, there's all sorts of conversations now about other kinds of uh, what we would call street drugs, I guess. Um, drugs that are used recreationally. People use marijuana recreationally and now medicinally, increasingly under medical supervision, uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, Ketamine is another one. Uh, and there's a long history in this country as, as the book Acid Test goes into wonderful detail to describe the 
serpentine relationship that our culture has had with uh, psychoactive medicine. But we're in an era now, I think, where people are really seeing the medical benefit and the safety of, of these medicines, and they're calling them medicines. It's, so can you tell me about um, the difference? Can you set us all straight on what's the major distinction between maybe something you get from your psychiatrist like Zoloft, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, and what you're working with, which is MDMA, um, also known as ecstasy for people who have used it recreationally. Yeah, well, I, I think it's been a very interesting progression of, in public opinion since we started from when people, many people were saying that either you'll never get approval for that or that's a dangerous and crazy idea. Um, and, and, you know, over the years, as we published more and more uh, rigorous science in in well-respected journals, the conversation has shifted a lot. But I think one of the uh, main misperceptions people have is uh, you alluded to it, thinking of drugs as just the effect of a drug is just solely based on the chemical properties of that drug and what happens in the human body when you take it. Um, It's really underappreciated what a difference it makes, what the set and setting uh, is the term often used, meaning what is the mindset? What is your mindset going into it? And what is this? So what's your purpose for using it? What's your intention? What's your level of willingness to explore right. the things that come up and what the setting is? Do you have proper support? Are there people there to support you and encourage staying with experience? And that, that can just make all the difference, especially, um, with these kinds of compounds that have such a profound um, psychological effect when you're taking them. Of course, it's true of Zoloft also, uh, but to a lesser degree, uh, no doubt, um, you know, your understanding of it and the way the prescribing prescriber gives it to you and talks to you about it is going to affect the way it works. That's part of it. But then, with these medicines, it's even more pronounced because um, you have a very kind of discrete um, period of where you're really having, maybe having a very intense or deep experience. And the set and setting makes a huge difference during that period. Right, right. So tell me about MDMA specifically, its its action in the brain, or at least how we uh, how how we're beginning to understand its action. I, I would imagine there's things we just don't know about how it works, like many drugs. We see the results, and that's an important piece of the research, I think. Tell me about how MDMA works in the brain. Yeah, well, like, I don't think we know how any psychiatric drugs actually work when it comes down to the details. We know quite a lot about what they do in the brain, but not, and we know the result, but not exactly how the result flows from what we know. So there are a lot of gaps and the same is true with MDMA. We know quite a lot about it. it. You know, one thing about MDMA is that it's been studied so widely by governments around the world because of the recreational use. So there's a lot of scientific data about it. Um, even though our treatment research is relatively small part of that, uh, there's a lot of data. So, uh, MDMA is uh, what is sometimes called a dirty drug. It doesn't just affect one system. 
it affects lots of uh, systems in the body and in the brain, uh, especially uh, increasing levels of serotonin and acting on serotonin receptors, but also other uh, neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and dopamine and others, and also causes elevation in hormone levels, uh, oxytocin and prolactin being two of the most interesting ones from a psychological point of view. Um, so uh, it's, it's, has a very complex effect. Our studies, are, you know, we, this is all nonprofit research, so we're operating with um, limited funds. So we're MAPS is, and MAPS Public Benefit Corporation are focused mainly on f- learning, does it work and is it safe? Because that's what the FDA cares about to approve a drug. So that's right. what our main thrust is. But many other people are studying things about how it might work. And, um, and tell me there's about, a lot of interesting. Yeah. If I can ask yeah. you about the safety part of it, because that, that's, that really stands out. I think for a lot of people that may be listening to this, I mean, I think would the audience would range the wide spectrum people who have stumbled onto recre- you know, some of these drugs recreationally and have firsthand experience or just have a culture in their lifestyle and understanding that it's, you know, it's not, it's not something to be afraid of other people. Um, and I would put, put myself in this category, even as it relates to, uh, medically controlled drugs. Uh, you know, I want to use as little as I can, you know, I want to keep things out of my body. And I work with a lot of clients who are similar and have this kind of skepticism about putting things into their body. So the safety of it, when you mention it's a dirty or so-called dirty, dirty drug, I, I, I want to make sure that's clear for everybody. So for example, I, I've shared with you my story of how I've been recently treated in, in, in remission for depression. I uh, have been taking Zoloft, which is an SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, which my understanding of it, it raises the serotonin levels by inhibiting the reuptake of, of those, the normal absorption of that in the brain. Serotonin being one of the essential brain chemicals that help us um, ascribe pleasure and meaning to things, right? Like have a, have a sense of of um, joy even, right? Uh, A lot of complex emotions um, use serotonin, um, but also, so I'm using a a medicine called Remeron, mirtazapine, which is, I think, maybe the uh, one of the opposites of MDMA in that it's a very selective, it's an H1 antagonist, histamine, uh, antihistamine antagonist, which creates, uh, pulls out features of um, treats features of depression in the body um, and, and causes a physical effect. But doctors like to use those, I think. My, my sense of it is that it, they almost like a, a, a painter has a palette of colors and they would rather have drugs that are just yellow or red and, and blue. And we know what the blue does. We kind of know how that's going to affect it's the histamine receptor is going to make you a little drowsy uh, if you block that or something. And you know, so you're saying MDMA affects multiple receptor sites in the brain. Is that right? Yes. And, and dirty drug, it's kind of, that's really jargon in psychiatry. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's probably not a good term to use because it implies things that I don't mean. It just means it affects multiple systems. And you're right. There, are, In general, there are advantages to um, drugs that, you can select levels of different effects independently. So what you're describing, having two different drugs that do different things might be better than having 
them combined because then you have a fixed dose of each. So you, you get more flexibility that way. However, um, there's the other side of it is sometimes there's synergy and there's a lot that isn't known about that. But, um, you know, some people feel that natural remedies have advantages because they somehow the different compounds work well together and that that's, you know, evolved over time. So um, that's an interesting question too. I think uh, with one thing about MDMA that uh, the way, the way we're using it, MDMA, and the same is true of the way people are using psilocybin in those studies and other, other drugs that you mentioned is we only give the drug in our studies three times in most studies, uh, sometimes twice um, and a month apart. So it's a much different situation in that um, it really, uh, MDMA certainly has side effects and risks, but it's an advantage if you only take a drug three times a month apart in terms of uh, those kinds of things. So it's not, um, I think that mitigates a lot of the problem of the fact that you're affecting a lot of things Mm. at the same time because you don't really need to adjust it over time. Right. Uh, So it's very different, in fact. And and it's sort of a, some of these treatments, uh, I want to just highlight this for ketamine also. Well, ketamine tends to have at least some of the research is suggesting one month kind of latency period where people come back that, you know, severe treatment resistant depression where people have tried multiple combinations of typical or an atypical antidepressants not working. And then they start using ketamine in the, in the try in the under supervision and come back a month at a time. But the, the, the depression people can report goes into remission that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't, you know, no drug has been able to touch their depression for some, in some cases you read about 10, 10 years, 20 years. And when you get a result like that, um, is that what you're seeing with MDMA? Is it, is it this sort of dramatic, compelling kind of cases? Or are there some people that are just like, huh, you know, that was really, yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, very interesting question, Keith. Uh, it's, it's different from that in general. You know, it, one, one thing that's, that we don't understand fully is, you know, the separation between the direct biochemical effect of the drug and the psychological effect of the process that people experience. experience. Uh, And um, obviously both are happening. At some level, the distinction is uh, a false distinction, but our level of understanding (laughs) requires us to make that distinction to sort it out as best we can at this point. Um, So I think... Uh, what we see with MDMA is sometimes things do shift right away Um, because what you're describing with ketamine is very dramatic um, and, and short lived in most cases. They have to keep getting doses regularly with ketamine every month. And one interesting uh, branch of work that's going on with ketamine is ketamine assisted psychotherapy. The idea that you use the ketamine to, catalyze a psychological process and work with that process. Uh, I, I haven't done that myself, but um, talking to people who do it and reading reports, it sounds as if that may uh, prolong the effect of the 
ketamine. If, if you do that for a while, you may not have to keep getting it every month is what some right. reports right. are suggesting. So it's obviously both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we've had, for instance, people uh, have just start sleeping well, who have had terrible sleep, people with PTSD who have had many other treatments and failed, just start sleeping through the night. Mm. That has happened. It's going to be life changing for them, though. It's life changing. And we've had people just, you know, who've had like uncontrollable rage, just have that stop happening after one session. Wow. And most of the symptoms, and that's not the usual case. And most of the symptoms, even in those cases, people still had a lot of symptoms and it was a process over time. Right. So our observations suggest with MDMA, at least it has more to, you know, well, who knows what it has more to do with, but there's a very strong effect of the psychological process is what we think. It accelerates the psychological processes, therapeutic psychological processes, um, self-organization properties of the mind and the psyche. Um, why, why MDMA and why PTSD? Why, why I understand why, but I want to hear you speak to why those are, you know, paired in, in your studies. Yeah. Well, um, it really, there, there's a part of an acid test when Rick and I, Rick Doblin and I first met and I approached him to ask some advice about how we could get some research doing and going. It turned out we were both interested in that. So we, we were really interested in studying a number of these different compounds for a number of different things. Um, but we chose MDMA for PTSD at the time, uh, because it seems particularly well suited just theoretically, you know, at that, this was, we submitted our first application to FDA in October of 2001. So PTSD wasn't very prominent in the consciousness. Then the Iraq war wasn't, happening so um but we thought since there are two things about mdma well here's here's a part of our thinking uh treating it treating ptsd treating people for the results of trauma um (coughs) usually involves revisiting the trauma in psychotherapy uh and there are kind of two areas of problem that keep that from working. One is that sometimes quite often people with PTSD, they start trying to process the trauma. They're so overwhelmed by emotion, by anxiety that they can't do it. They drop out of treatment. They're flooded, right? They're flooded. It's even re-traumatizing perhaps. So that's one obstacle. Conversely, people with PTSD often also tend to have a lot of emotional numbing, which is a type of protect, you know, self-protection. Like the opposite of flooding. They're just shut down, walls are up and they are denying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. It's a way of avoiding the very painful feelings. So um, it turns out that in that case, people might be able to talk about their trauma and therapy, but if they're not emotionally engaged, it just doesn't seem to be very helpful. Yeah. So what we, there's this idea that others have described that window of tolerance or the optimal arousal zone where there's right. a, a sweet spot where you're neither flooded and overwhelmed, but you're not emotionally cut off either. And that's what MDMA, one of the ways MDMA seems to work is give people uh, 
some time in that optimal arousal zone or, or thinking of internal family systems terms. And I've talked to Dick Schwartz a lot about this. I'd say it's people suddenly have access to a tremendous amount of self energy and they're able to be unblended from their, their parts that are, are involved in the PTSD. So they get into this curious state that serves the drug, the drug accentuates and accelerates something which Dick would say, and many people who study the brain say is a natural ability we all have to experience this, what Dick calls self, uh, or some people would call meta-awareness, metacognition kind of, um, or trans, uh, transcend, transcendent states where there's uh, curiosity, um, compassion tends to show up there, clarity, and there's some organization, but it's, but it's a flexible kind of thinking. You're talking about the window of tolerance there where we see people in that zone in the middle that sort of flow where psychologists call flow. They can sort of go wherever they need to go and they're perfectly tuned to the moment and to the environment. They're taking in what they need to, they're letting go of what they need to let go. So you're saying MDMA somehow um, allows the brain, I'm imagining the hippocampus, the thalamus, um, all of those, the gatekeepers of our subconscious, right? And sensory information allows that those gatekeepers to kind of work fluidly and efficiently. That's a good way of describing it. MDMA causes decreased activity in the amygdala, which is the fear center, and increased activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is like higher processing. So, yeah, and I, I think that's, I, I've found IFS to be an incredibly powerful model and used it a lot when I'm not treating people in, private practice anymore because I'm full-time on the research, but I, I found it very helpful. And we find that people's awareness of parts increases a lot with MDMA. And it's a very useful model to have for supporting people. Right. Um, but the other thing is it's very similar, you know, that non-pathologizing, I would say you could call it a point of view, but I think I would call it um, uh a realization of the truth about people right? Um, is what I would call it. And, you know, we basically learned the same principle from Stanislav Grof, who was one, Dick, Dick Schwartz has been an important teacher for us. And, and Stanislav Grof, Stan Grof, who is a psychiatrist who was one of the early LSD researchers. Founder of Esalon. Um, am I getting that right? Uh, what? Founder of Esalon uh, Retreat not, Center? Not founder, but he, oh. he was a scholar in residence there for a time after he left Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, he talks about the inner healing intelligence, which I think is the same idea. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, and this is, you know, we, we talk to people about this in the preparation for the MDMA sessions. So that is our approach. We don't think we have the answer for what you need. We think that if you if we can support you in accessing your own inner healing intelligence you'll find out what you need and you'll right. get what you need right that is right that is our approach yeah uh, it's so beautiful it's it's such a when i talk to dick about this i think people are you know got to hear that message really clearly what a distinction that is from from the medical culture up until this point western medical culture this point in time uh, where the healing process is not the disease. That's something that comes up. I, I think it might be Joseph Campbell saying that, or I can't remember the quote from the, from the book, but that's what Dick's work is about with IFS, self-leadership. 
the healing process is, is not the disease. In other words, somebody who has schizophrenia, and now maybe not all forms of schizophrenia, uh, as obviously we want to rule out things like organic brain damage or uh, parts of the brain that just aren't working physically for some reason, organic reason. But um, where somebody is having a schizophrenic delusional reaction, they're not in touch with reality. If I apply what you're saying about how the brain works and then how MDMA assists the brain actually helps it just kind of get back to its normal way of moving electricity around and functioning, that something like a symptom like schizophrenia or a delusion is actually some the brain is trying to process and heal itself and we actually need to respect that and try to help it do that not try to treat it and numb it there's a description um i think it's it's joseph yeah joseph campbell who is a well-known comparative mythology and comparative religious studies scholar um and 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 author his wife his wife christina uh had a child i think i'm getting this right but this is in the book acid test uh, and she went into postpartum psychosis, what we would, what doctors probably labeled from the DSM postpartum psychosis. She was having, she was not in touch with reality. She was probably looked very disturbed and acted very erratically. So they gave her a tranquilizer um, in the in the in the emergency or in the in the medical ward. And so then she was just left with all the fear and terror because of how the doctors were responding out of fear to, to get rid of this thing that was happening. Um, she kind of, they called that a, she called that a spiritual emergency. Um, where yeah, that was like, Christina Groff. That was Stan oh, Groff's wife. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Stan yeah. Groff's wife. So, uh, it sounds like that's parallel to what you're talking about, that we don't want to get rid of these things that are happening when the mind fragments because of trauma, we want to help explore the fragments and kind of, uh, it bring acceptance and compassion to those. MDMA accelerates that. I would say so. Yeah, and as you say, there you know there's some areas where it can be not clear. Is there an organic problem where the brain isn't working correctly? And there's a, a, a big gray area between those two, also. But yeah, I think um, it stands to reason if um, you know, thinking about the analogy to the body healing a wound, um, there's a big reaction to the wound, but that is an attempt to heal. Sometimes it's problematic. Sometimes the, you know, inflammation can be very problematic. That's happening with COVID actually. Um, so the response to attempting to heal sometimes needs some help. Too. Yeah. But it's, it's, it is true that, you know, it's always an attempt to heal. The body never does something that isn't along the lines of an attempt to heal. So why would right. the psyche do be any different? Yeah, it's, it's just a truly fascinating way. And, and, it, and I'm so uh, delighted to, to find that there's so many more voices now in the field of psychology and, and in medicine who are seeing this emergent property of the, the body and, and the mind-body as, as something we don't have to pathologize. We can just, we, we want to go along with it a lot more than Western, a lot of med, Western medicine does. And don't get me wrong. There's, you know, if you, if you have an infection, we don't want to meditate and, and, <laughs> and try to get in touch with the infection more, right? We want to get the hell away from it and get it out of the body, right. but just help the body. We don't need napalm, right. To, to get rid of infection. Um, right. Maybe the most minimal thing. 
Um, when you mentioned healing in the way that the brain works and how it, how it he can heal itself, really, if we facilitate it and, 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 and link it together or help, help it link together. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. Tell me about your, your journey. Um, you started off, well, if I remember right from reading about this, I had, I had heard about parts of this when I, when I got to know you in training. Um, but you, you applied for a loan um, with your wife, Annie. You thought maybe you, you're going to open up a, a farm with Clydesdales and you didn't get the <laughs> loan. And so you said, screw it. I'm going to go to medical school. <laughs> yes. tell, me, tell me about your journey, journey to being a healer. Um, you transitioned from an ER doc to psychiatry, uh, especially. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, a journey that probably makes me as one of the uh, interviewers for medical school said, it sounds like you don't have your, like, looking at what you've been doing the last few years, it sounds like you don't have your head screwed on straight. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I was actually an English major in college. I, I went to college thinking I wanted to go to medical school and then I took chemistry and realized I, I really didn't enjoy chemistry, but I love English literature. I love literature and writing. I've heard that from many people, they, 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 the getting stuck at organic chem. <laughs> well, it wasn't even organic. It was just regular. I took. I had to go back and take organic later, uh, which I actually enjoyed at that point. Um, anyway, so I, I, you know, was an English major, and then, you know, I graduated in 1970. We were on strike at the end of that my senior year, the, you know, trying to stop the Vietnam War, um, and I worked on that and. Um, and then I um, really wasn't thinking I wanted to go to school again and ended up living in a commune in upstate New York, which is where I uh, ran into Annie, whom I had known just vaguely uh, before. And uh, we've been together ever since. That was 1971, and we've been together since then. So um, that was the best thing about the commune. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but not an obvious path toward medical school. Uh, so, you know, I had, uh, I had kind of a feeling, um, that I was in a position to do more to contribute and that I wanted to do something, get more skills to, to do something. After a while, I thought, um, this is great. I wanted to be a writer and found out that's not as easy as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know that. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> so, any, so I, I, yeah, I decided I had it in the back of my mind to get, maybe to go to medical school, but I also wanted to do organic farming. So that was a, yeah, I, I walked out of, out of the federal land loan office or whatever and um, said, as you said, screw it, I'm going to go to medical school. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I had never taken organic chemistry or physics, unfortunately. Uh, 
or biology, actually, I never took, I took physics. So I had to go back and take courses at the University of Vermont is where I did that. Uh, and that's when I took organic chemistry and I actually found it was fascinating. Um, had a very good teacher there. Uh, so, and you, and, you, and you, then you went into emergency medicine, Michael. I, I want to have you read a, a part of um, the book Acid Test that you were that, that where you're quoted, um, because I, I think it talks about your your time. You you you, you decided to study um, emergency medicine, and you worked. Uh, say a little bit about that first, if you can, to set this up. The, your your work as an ER doctor. Yeah. Um, well, when I, w- I went to medical school, I actually trained in internal medicine. I initially thought I wanted to be a, a, a general internist, but then I found that I really liked the uh, more acute evaluation and things in the ER. It was kind of ironic because my favorite thing was talking to the patients, but I also um, liked action. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I ended up doing some extra training in surgery and pediatrics and, and practicing emergency medicine for 10 years. And in those years, there weren't many emergency medicine residencies, so you could take the boards if you had other training. So I, I, I found the ER to be very interesting and, and enjoyable is a funny word for it, but uh, I, I liked that work for quite a while. Um, but over time, I, I began to feel like I needed a change, which is something that happens for me periodically <laughs> throughout my throughout my life. Um, so, yeah, this is a quote uh, that you've asked me to read from Dick Schwartz, the author of our Acid Test, recorded many, many conversations. So uh, I oh, guess uh, this is from Tom, Tom Schroeder. Yeah. Tom, Tom Schroeder recorded it. So yeah. I, this yeah must be verbatim what I said. I can't say I remember the precise words, but, uh, and I was feeling, this is talking about toward the, getting toward the end, toward 10 years in the ER and feeling like I needed to change. And I was feeling drawn towards something, a different relationship with patients. I was always doing things to people, which was actually very good sometimes. Um, that's what it called for. Um, putting a tube in and making somebody breathe, that kind of thing. But I was kind of developing a longing for a more collaborative way of working with people and also kind of feeling that I was catching the tail end of psychiatric problems. I was seeing people who were having heart attacks because they hadn't been taking care of themselves or who were stabbing each other, who were taking overdoses. A lot of what happens in the ER is the result of psychological problems coming to an end result. So it felt it also felt like it would be more satisfying to intervene at a different point. Yeah. So that's part of what drew me to psychiatry. Also, my own curiosity about the nature of consciousness and psychological process. Yeah. And- what what, what um, really resonates for me when, when I was having my spiritual emergency over the last you know, four to six months and, and, and kind of getting in touch with exiles, as I told Dick about this, you know, uh, exiles that were being... Um, protected from protectors that were protecting protectors that were hiding those protectors. And, you know, as, as a, uh, as a healer, as a, as a person who chooses the identity of healer, a person who wants to run into whether, you know, even I would even say a firefighter, right? An actual police officer, firefighter, those professions, they're helping professions. We choose to go in to the situation where people need the most help (laughs) for some reason. We, we want to show up there and, and be there. And so I found myself um, unwillingly, I would say, 
but with the help of uh, medication to help me help my brain go where it just needed to go and really wanted to go, I got in touch with these parts of me as you as you point out so um, eloquently in that in that in that quote that you just read. Parts of me that were confused about doing and being. And it sounds like you almost had a similar kind of crisis in the ER. I mean, you can do things in the ER. You're putting tubes in, you're, you're recording everything. Everything's charted. It's, it's very nice and clean and linear, I suppose. It's rewarding in that sense. You go home and you either did something or you didn't. Uh, uh, maybe it's like farming in a, in a way. You're, it's very clear. People live or die. Plants live or die. Mm -hmm. um, but something rattled me, and it sounds like it rattled you as well. And, and, and you said you wanted to do something that was more holistic or something that allowed you to broaden yourself. Is that, is, is that a fair assessment? It, it is. And uh, not, you know, not fully realizing how much that was true when I, as I stepped into it, really. Because you know, what, the thing that made me decide on psychiatry largely was uh, something was reading about reading Stan Groth's work. And I thought his way of understanding these deep psychological processes and the healing potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness, not just with drugs, but with breath work or meditation. Or, you know, I thought that was so compelling that I thought, yeah, this is the direction I want to go. <clears throat> so I, I applied for psychiatry residency and for the Groff training at the same time. And the Groff training happens in six day modules over a couple of years. There's nine of those. Um, so I was able to do them concurrently. I'd periodically go out to California and do the Groff training. So I got, I got to the Groff training thinking, you know, I had already done quite a lot of my own therapy in the past. Um, and I had, um, had my own psychedelic experiences in college. So I thought, you know, I kind of know this territory and I'm going to learn to work with other people. And, and the first thing I learned was the main thing about working with other people is doing your own work mm -hmm. and have, you know, confronting your own fear and your own parts and working, working internally is a prerequisite really. Um, and, I found important to keep doing periodically, you know, in a way, it, of course, it fits with what we're saying that these are this non pathologizing approach, trusting that, you know, these are human capabilities of, to heal these things. We're not going to really be capable of fully trusting that unless we've gone there ourselves, whatever right. took right. us there, whether right. it's depression or just willingness to, heal or feeling a crisis in your career or whatever. Um, it really brought home to me. I, I had, you know, many, many painful and intense and some joyful and liberating experiences doing my own breath work, which is actually quite a bit like psychedelic sessions. And then I went on to do internal family systems, having my own therapy for a number of years. Uh, want to just um, want to put a put a footnote in there and, and, and asterisk kind of just to connect some dots for people holotropic breath work um, just to and, and I'll, I'll give my assessment of it but you but you're obviously the expert here but um, just to connect in the wider culture um, my understanding of it is the 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 um, hyperventilating practice really breathing intensely 
is it super oxygenating the bloodstream and then that's what's or, or is it causing the brain to get slightly less oxygen and that's what causes the um, altered state? Well, actually less. Yeah. Less. <clears throat> it's increasing the oxygen um, uh, pressure slightly, but you can't do, you can't, um, most of the oxygen is carried in the hemoglobin. So you can't, you can't get much higher in oxygen, but you can get a lot lower on carbon dioxide. Ah. So you're blowing off carbon dioxide is um, this really a more important effect because that causes a shift, which causes the hemoglobin to release less oxygen. Mm. So paradoxically, even though there's a little bit more oxygen in the blood, uh, it, it doesn't get into the tissue Right, as easily, right, and also right. there's some vasoconstriction, you know, constriction of blood vessels. So it's right. actually that's probably more the effect. But as Stan Groff says, it's like a non-specific releaser. So the what the way the breathwork came, holotropic breathwork came about was, you know, Stan Groff is really one of the world's leading LSD researchers in Czech, what was then Czechoslovakia, and then at Johns Hopkins, and. Um, but then when suddenly LSD became illegal, um, he couldn't do that anymore. Uh, so he, but he had realized and the, you know, coming as an academic psychiatrist and trained in psychoanalysis and biological psychiatry, when he started um, seeing what was happening with people with LSD, he realized, you know, the psyche is much bigger than we realized. And, and so he got curious, you know, some people pathologized these powerful experiences, but Stan thought, no, these are actually, they're powerful and strange sometimes, but they have a coherence and a meaning and they actually can be helpful to people. We need to to work with this. So he was a true scientist that decided to pursue it. But so, but so he, he began reading and realized, well, many cultures have known about this phenomenon of having ways to shift consciousness for thousands of years, you know, through sometimes through plant medicines, sometimes through breathing practices or prolonged dancing or drumming. Yeah. Religious so, experience, um, you know, in the mystical, even I want to just point out conservative theologies have in their, in, in their body of knowledge, some of the same types of experiences. They're just using different language and a static religious experience. If we were to do a PET scan or an MRI, we would probably find that going on, this euphoria happening, right? Yeah, well, that's euphoria or, or terror. Terror, <laughs> you know, pretty close. It, it can be both, related. but um, there was actually a study uh, not too long ago with psilocybin for experienced meditators in Switzerland that showed those effects can be very similar. And actually, now that you mentioned it, that when, when right before MDMA became illegal in 1985, Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, you know, was very interested in its um, potential for therapeutic potential. So he realized this is likely to become illegal the way LSD did. So he sent uh, LSD, I mean, MDMA around, it was perfectly legal then. He sent it around to a number of influential people and asked them to, what their opinion was. And one of the people he sent it to was Brother David Stendhal-Rost, who, are you familiar with his books? No, but I, I think I know where you're going with this, yeah. Yeah, he's a Benedictine monk, yeah. and he's written a, a number of wonderful books about gratitude. He, he says people think they're 
grateful because they're happy. Actually, they're happy because they're grateful. <laughs> so that's kind of his key message. He's a, but he comes from this, you know, intense Catholic, um, you know, tradition from the monastery. And so he, he took the MDMA and he wrote back and, and I've actually met him since. And is, he's stands by this. He said, yes, this is a genuine mystical experience. This is the same thing that our practices in the monastery are aimed at achieving. Wow. That speaks so, so much to me. And, and I think, uh, I hope it, hope it really penetrates for people to, to realize that this isn't about a culture war type of thing, which I think is the unfortunate legacy of the uh, legislation that happened to, to move a lot of these drugs to schedule one for good reason, because they, they, as you pointed out, um, and as the book points out, when they're abused or when these are used not for therapeutic purposes, these are dangerous substances. I mean, ergot poisoning was one, was one of the first ones that the, the witch trials of the 800s in Europe and the 1600s in Massachusetts um, were the results of toxicity, right, to neurochemicals. So these are neurochemicals that can be dangerous. But um, and then back to, you know, uh, when you mentioned holotropic breathwork, just as, I'm just saying this for fun because I want to reference this. But I don't know if you've ever had these things linked together when somebody says, oh, you do holotropic breathwork. But as people may realize in the in either literature or uh, films that they're seeing with BDSM, a little bit of sexual neuro, neurobiology here for a moment. But when people are watching someone uh, have their partner choke them during a sexual act, is that what's happening? Are they are they I mean, obviously not not homicidal uh, sex scenes. But when when, uh, you know, in BDSM and kink type of activities, when it's a partner related thing, they're they're looking for my understanding is that is actually a a, um, you know, they've given permission to do that. And it's a thing that they're asking their partner to do to enhance the pleasure by depriving the brain slightly of oxygen, not blacking out, hopefully. But is that if you ever, I don't know, does anybody ever ask you about that? Uh, no, but I, I suppose <laughs> I, I'm, I'm aware of people describing that. Uh, and I suppose that it's probably what it is in some way. I don't know the mechanism for that but yeah you got to get some research going on that michael yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's a, just a sidebar i mean it, it's it's it looks disturbing and, I, and i've noticed people kind of think of that or miscategorize that as oh it's a homicidal or misogynist act when in fact if you if you listen to conversations in the in the the bdsm community that's a common type of thing, and, and there's, yeah. a bio, there's a biology behind it. It's 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 part of a, a partnered activity. But um, get it. I just want to get back to so getting back to um, MDMA. Where where is the research right now stand? Um, I I thought I remember hearing it was fast tracked because it was the, the FDA saw the results, and especially because the epidemic of suicides from PTSD are associated with PTSD in the military. They they said we've got to just get this available to people. Is that, is that correct? Is that happening? Uh, in, 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 in essence, yeah. It's um, basically the, the FDA has a series of steps in drug development. We're, we're basically doing nonprofit drug development, which is a very unusual thing, but seems to be working. Um, so there's, you know, phase one, there's preclinical work in animals, and then phase one trials in healthy volunteers. Then the, 
then there, there needs to be a series of phase two trials, which is when you use it for treatment of a disorder or problem uh, in relatively small numbers and see if you can consistently demonstrate safety, that it's safe and can be effective. So that's what we've, those six phase two trials you've discussed that MAPS has sponsored. Uh, as it, by the end of, by the summer of 2017, based on that data, the FDA gave us approval to move into phase three, which is the final phase before you apply to have a drug approved. Uh, and they not only allowed us to move into phase three, they granted breakthrough therapy designation, which is what you're referring to, which means that you have very promising phase two data for a, a, a problem that needs, you know, definitely, it could be a major advance in the treatment of a problem for which there is an adequate treatment. So that's the idea is it doesn't mean you still have to do phase three successfully. Sure. But sure. but it, it's aimed at expediting. It means they have an interest in expediting it through the process as much as possible, increased meetings with them and that kind of thing. So that was very encouraging. And now the rule is you have to have two phase three trials. So we, we are just finishing the first one. Uh, I think the last visit for the last person was may have been this week. Mm. Or, or last week or next week. It's, I know it's the last person is finishing up and then we expect we have to clean the database and do all these things to report to FDA, but we should be able to break the blind because right now we don't know who got MDMA. Half the people got all the same therapy without MDMA. It's a double blind. It's a double blind study. So, um, we expect to break the blind in September and mm. then we'll know if we have a successful phase three, first phase three trial. The, meanwhile, the second phase three trial is screening people as of this week. I wow. think. Wow. Um, so it's the wow. next, that one's just starting. So we expect uh, it'll, you know, go on for another probably a year, take it, a year or a little more. And at that point, if we, if those two are successful, then we, um, submit an application to get an FDA indication for MDMA as a treatment, MDMA-assisted right. psychotherapy as a treatment for PTSD. And it will be required that people have the training in how to work with it in psychotherapy and have specialized clinics. There will not be, we're, we're almost certain, and we don't, you know, what we're suggesting and what we think the FDA sounds like they will probably agree with is no take-home drugs. You won't be able to go to the pharmacy, but it'll be shipped from the manufacturer to the clinic and it'll have to be a licensed clinic, a little bit like, you know, the methadone clinic model mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you have to, you know, any, any competent people could right. get a license to do it, right. but they need the proper setup and the proper it, training. Let me ask you about the setup and training. Um, I want to ask you how COVID is affecting uh, the, the rollout of this, if it's interfering with the training and the, and the, the studies, but also set up and, and um, set up in protocol because, uh, I, I saw, I, I looked into possibly starting or bringing a, a, a ketamine-based kind of treatment into our practice and w was looking at other practices that are doing this. And some of them are big players and people with deep pockets uh, who are just kind of opening up clinics, um, almost like uh, designer kind of infusion clinics, which are out there for, you know, health reasons and they're not too regulated is my sense of it. Um, or they find a way to, you know, justify treatments that are not medically necessarily necessary. 
Um, are, are you afraid at all that that, that could happen with, with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy? Does it, are, 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 you, are you confident in, and hopeful that it's going to take a course where it's really going to be um, it, it, the, the rollout of this when it eventually does become uh, available for psychiatrists to administer in a therapeutic setting, that it will be done you know, close to the protocol, which gets the results you're getting? Well, we're, we have some concern along those lines. Um, yeah, I think um, one advantage we have is that uh, there are two ways we're hoping to avoid, avoid going down that designer clinic route, uh, or number, more than two ways. But one is it, the fact that um, there's a, even though this is nonprofit, um, MAP, MDMA can't be patented. It's been off patent since... Merck patented in 1914, so it's been off patent for a long time. But there is a thing called uh, um, data exclusivity, which means if MAPS gets MDMA approved in 2023, um, anybody can make the generic, go make their own generic and do their own studies and get approval for their own generic. But no one else can use MAPS data for five and a half years. Um, to get to make a generic. I see. And probably no one's going to bother to use, to do their own studies because they can't patent it. So it's, it's never going to be hugely profitable. Ah. There, you know, two problems with the profitability. One is you only need to take it a few times <laughs> and the other is it can't be patented. So, so it really, A, it really works. Do. So the drug, big drug companies are going to say, <laughs> ah, let's, let's go for something that people need to use the rest of their life. Let's stick with, I don't know, what some other thing. Trazodone or something, uh, but no, that's 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 fascinating, but and but so, encouraging. So that'll allow that'll mean that people have to go through the maps training or some training that maps considers equivalent um, for therapists to understand the basic principles that we think are important to work with MBMA. Now we we don't want people to have to do exactly what we're doing. We want people to be able to innovate, innovate, but we want them to have good training in the basic approach of, you know, right. the inner healing intelligence. Uh, and then, you know, people already, people are planning studies to see how it can be combined with one thing or another, how the therapy could be modified a little bit. That's, that's great. I mean, we yeah. did a pilot study with couples where we combined it with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for the, uh, and that was that was useful. But I think wow. that's going to give MAPS some control. And the fact that MAPS is not, you know, the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation is what will actually have to sell the MDMA after approval. Mm-hmm. Their their mission is public benefit, not maximizing profit. Yeah, and that seems and, so and, important. Yeah, and the cost of the drug is actually a small part because there's so much therapy involved. Right. So one of our concerns is because even though we think it's very cost effective over time, the upfront cost is higher because you need more therapy sessions in a concentrated form. So we're also, we have a whole group working on getting insurance, figuring out how to get insurance company insurance um, reimbursement for it, how to uh, find ways to make it, cost effective. So we're very concerned that we want it to be available to people, not just people, you know, available to anybody who needs it. Yeah. 
it sounds like it's really being done thoughtfully and well. And, and, and I recommend the book Acid Test for anybody who's, who's even mildly interested in the, in the, in the subject. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you get to hear stories not only of, of you, Michael, but of, um, Rick Doblin, who's the, the president or director of maps. Um, mm. and, uh, also a guy named Nick in the book, who's a, a, a veteran, uh, and who was a machine gunner in the, in the infantry the Marine infantry and you, you get to sort of have firsthand view of his, uh, combat experience, which was traumatic, um, using a machine gun on people and then, you know, coming back and, and like you said, uh, having to process that or, or, or hold that somewhere in the body and in the brain and in the, in the psyche. Um, it's just fascinating to watch and then to watch his experience with, and, uh, 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 psychedelic assisted uh psychoactive assisted treatment is is amazing um which which of the of the of the different psychoactive medicines out there being studied for use therapeutically do you think is most likely to be um i don't know uh, pose the biggest benefit or or come to market soon i know um i can't remember i guess it's jansen pharmaceuticals uh, recently brought to market it's Spravata. Uh, which is either nasal administered ketamine or in, in injection, um, in, of course, in a clinic. Um, do, do you feel like there's any, I mean, obviously you've spent most of your time, I think, with MDMA and research and experience. Do, do you feel like, I mean, are you going to branch out into LSD uh, assisted psychotherapy or ketamine or others? I don't know if PCP is even on the list anymore. Probably not, but um, well, Map, I think Maps Maps is interested in ultimately branching out. Right now, you know, if once we get approval for MDMA, then part of the money that comes into the benefit corporation, you know, that's going to go to research and all other things like that. So, part there's an interest in branching out into some other medicines. I'm I'll be uh, 74 in October, so I've very busy with MDMA for the foreseeable future. So I, I'm content with uh, not meeting my initial expectation, which was that I study them all eventually. Right. <laughs> but other right. people are. And I think, you know, it looks likely in terms of where we are in the drug development process, MDMA is the most likely to be approved first, but psilocybin mm. is close behind they got they got breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin for depression uh and they're uh, you know we're starting trials in europe they've been doing trials in europe already so i think psilocybin and mdma are likely to be the first two and then i think there's interest in ibogaine for uh opiate addiction uh it's a more medically tricky drug but um that's an area that right it's probably right. going to be important and LSD also. And treatment of alcoholism. I think the, the list goes, you can just go down the list. You can, yeah. you can imagine this being used in not only the U S military or any military in which there's combat veterans suffering disproportionately from these horrific, very debilitating, not just for them, but for their families and for children uh, living in a household with someone with PTSD is, is, is a super high risk um, for children situation. So it, it seems to have these benefits for families. And then even just thinking about prison, the, the, the mental illness epidemic, the way we use prisons uh, instead of mental health treatment, um, which is a whole nother topic, which I'll, I'll hope to get into with, with, with others about 
the justice system, especially what we're seeing now in, the, in uh, justice reform and social justice and being um, more centered on healing and, and thinking about us as uh, a whole, you know, as, as not just a country, but as individuals and families, we, you know, instead of just like you said, treating the, the guy who's coming in with a gash in his arm uh, and, and patching him up and sending him out, maybe asking some questions, you know, if we can get more integration across our fields and disciplines where we're, we're, it's not just up to the social worker to ask those questions. It's, you know, an ER doctor who may be listening to this, you may realize that you're in some way serving as like the way a priest does. It's a spiritual act. You're interacting with people during these crises. And if, if you know, I, as I, I'm going to be having Dr. Frederick uh, Min on my show, and he's the oncologist, hematologist, who treated, was treating me in, uh, really for, for nothing, actually. He was, he, his, his treatment findings were, you're healthy. You don't have cancer. Get out of here. And he was giving me uh, vitamin B injections for a little while until he said, take the Zoloft and get out of here. And, and, but he told me I mean, specifically, you know, he, he was somebody who didn't have to take the time to do this. He, he invested spiritually in me. Now I'm going to talk to him about that, Michael, mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, he's a doctor. Great. I thought your report was so moving, Keith. I really appreciated your sharing yeah. your own experience. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you reading it. And um, hopefully it's, it's, it's um, meaningful to others who, who may have this experience. Um, you know, our bodies and our minds are the same thing. And I think this idea that, that you know, I, and certainly I've, I learned about it firsthand that I would bifurcate and have this division in my, my own mind that, oh, these are physical symptoms. This must be me getting older. Instead of doing the harder thing, which is looking at why, why, why is this happening? Why am I not remembering things? Why am I losing words at age 42? Um, and once I could, you know, sit with somebody like Dr. Men, he, he really broke through to me because he, he wasn't anxious about it. He wasn't, he wasn't going to keep doing tests. In fact, that's what he, he acted. He acted from this place of, I would say, spiritual confidence Obviously, he's he's gifted in his profession technically, but um, you know he had some spiritual chops there, and I, you know just being able to reach across and say the right things to me to say, stop it, you know, you're this is it, this is this is something to look at, this is an opportunity for you, go into it and don't don't treat this thing, you know. In other words, he was it ended up that I did need treatment, but he was saying stop running away from treatment. Um, nothing to be afraid of. And in fact, that's been my experience ever since. Beautiful. That. Yeah. Um, sounds like a true physician, not just a technician. Exactly. And I hope to have conversations with more of those people like yourself. Uh, and like so many that, you know, I'm sure I want to bring those people together and, and help others understand that there, that those people are, are out there and that we, we don't have to settle for kind of the, the drive through treatment that we often get with, as a managed care, sometimes we have to. Yeah, go and deep. I think, you know, I think physicians and therapists are hungry for this. I, you yeah. know, I, I've sometimes said I think the patients really need this treatment, but so do the the physicians and the therapists. Absolutely. And, and we've had psychiatrists. You know, in our training, we show a lot of video of our sessions that people get to see in great detail what happens for people. And we've had a, several psychiatrists in the training just break down and cry mm-hmm. and say, this is why I went into psychiatry and I haven't been able to do what I really wanted to do for years. So 
you know, anybody paying attention realizes there's so much more to psychological healing than isolating it to you've got to reprocess your trauma or you've got to correct these cognitive distortions. Both of those may well be true, but to, you know, uh, limit it to thinking about it's just one of those things when you, if you get out of the way and be curious and encourage people to be open to what comes, you find the breadth and the depth and the richness and the complexity of each individual's healing process is beyond what we ever could have kicked up, cooked up with our rational minds as a plan. And it's far more beautiful and far more effective. Yeah. Uh, profound than just um, reducing it to some simple concept. Right. Yeah. The concepts are, you know, they're, they're our friends, right? The, the knowledge that we have and the tools we use, the technology we have, they're, they're amazing and they, they're, they they get us somewhere. But at the end of the day, you know, we're just on a ride with this thing and it's called life. <laughs> right. And we, we, like, we're lucky if we can just kind of tap into something bigger than us and then realize, wow, uh, my work is simple today. All I have to do is show up. That's it. Like, I just have, to, but I have to really show up today. And that's, that's about it. The yeah. rest, all the technical stuff will come. I have a golf coach. We'll end on this note, but I have a golf uh, a pro that I've gone to for coaching swing coach. And uh, he's got this way about him and he, it's sort of a Zen thing. I've never asked him if he's like, I don't know what his philosophies are, but he just kind of all of his instructions, even though they're technically accurate, and right on, he, he, he has this quality of delivering them, like almost if, as if he'll say, like, the ball just wants to go straight, Keith. Just let it go straight. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. <laughs> you know? That's great. Stop trying so hard. Of course, you got to do 10 things to sort of be in the right place at the right time. But, you know, <laughs> generally speaking, get, the, get all the work done and then shut the hell up or <laughs> just, uh, right. you know move out of the way, like you said, and, yeah. and lay down and submit and let it go. Um, yeah. Really a privilege and a pleasure to talk with you, Michael. And uh, I hope people hear this and share it and, um, and stay tuned to maps uh, and also the resources that I'll put on the website, um, a link to acid test by Tom Schroeder, fantastic book and, and also more ways to find you. Is there anything else you want to say about how people can get in touch with trainings and uh, how that's going on uh, during COVID? Yeah, um, well, we, we've had to make a lot of adjustments, of course. Uh, we're, we have a training program going. We're in the process of revamping it and expanding it and training more trainers. Uh, but in the meantime, we've, we've now, Annie and I have done two trainings online. We're going to do another one that we were going to do in the Netherlands in, the, in November, and we're going to do it right here from Asheville. Uh, and so it's actually, we were concerned about it, but it's, uh, it's going well. We, we, you know, it's, uh, not the same as being in person, but we think it's going to, it's, we think it's working to do it remotely like this while we have to. So, uh, and we are, one of our big focuses is training more therapists to get ready for post approval. Yep. Um, and so we're going to be expanding the training program a lot People can apply online. I encourage anybody that's interested to just get get the application. And if you go to maps.org, uh, if the 
I'm not positive if the application is active right now during this transition period, but if not, it will be. You can also sign up for free MAPS uh, email updates. Right. And that'll keep yep. you in, informed about the training. And that's and what of course, I did. Yeah. All of our, yeah, yeah, and it, all of our protocols and our treatment manual and everything is available free of charge on the website. We're, that's one of the beauties of a nonprofit. We share everything right. except information about the participants, of course. Yes, yeah. confidential. It's maps.org, <laughs> M-A-P-S dot org. Um, and that's what I did, Michael. I was going to say just briefly that uh, got on the waiting list, at least when I tried maybe three, four months ago. At the time, the application was not active, I think, because COVID was hitting. And But you can get on the waiting list, and uh, I'm on that. And anybody interested in doing it, I hope to see you at one of these trainings with Michael and, and others that you're collaborating with. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, my best to Thank you and your family and, and everyone you're working with. I will. You know, actually I like to add one thing. You mentioned that uh, Rick Dobbin and I and Nick are in the book and he's also in the book acid test, not as much, but I just want to point out what an important part of this research and the therapy she has been too, and also a lot of other women involved so um, sometimes the guys get more uh, spotlight, but um, I just want to appreciate how, how important Annie and the other women's energy has been. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Keith. It's been really fun to see you again. And I hope Likewise. it won't be so long next time. I hope so too. Asheville's a great place. I hope to get down there soon. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. Dancing or drumming, dancing or drumming, dancing or drumming, dancing or drumming.